Okay, right. Neil Burgess in the house, more famously known for Barry Scott, but we know you're more than just that. So we're going to do a little deep dive. Thanks for thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. Uh, sorry for the sorry the technical issues we had at the beginning, but well, it is what it is. Now it we're happens. good. Yeah, well, we're good to go. We're good to go. It's mostly audio these days, anyway. But yeah, so um, you know, just wanted to take some time to discuss about some of the where your career started and how it sort of kind of ended up the way it has been part of this sort of cultural phenomenon in this country. You've probably been on more TVs than probably royalty. This <laughs> oh, that's topical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is very topical. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe not go there with the sort of uh, reaction that's had this week. <laughs> oh, we made that mistake releasing our last podcast the day they did the interview. Yeah. Oh. Kill, killed any momentum that we had. Absolutely, I'm not surprised. Isn't it crazy though that the world's going bonkers about that at the moment? And they're far more important things, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all it's a bit of a sideshow, it can be. Yeah, but yeah, with your career, so I understand you were a theatre actor back in uh, the 90s. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, I I I, uh, I first got into acting when I went to secondary school. My my fourth teacher was um, a drama and English teacher, and I think he spotted a certain gregarious nature to me. And kind of singled me out and said, "Hey, you should be in the school play and do some writing and stuff like that." So um, I just did what I was told to avoid a detention or two. So uh, and then I suddenly got I got bitten by the bug. I, it really did have a massive impact on my life uh, as a teenager, and it kind of seemed to be the key or like a Pandora's box of who I was. So I just thought I'll just pursue it. So I went to. Um, I went to drama school. I auditioned for drama school, so I did the drama school training. Uh, and that was mainly back in the 1980s. That The, the emphasis there was on theatre back then because we still only had three, four TV channels back then. Channel 4, I think, began around about 1982. So it was still a pretty small um, amount of TV channels that were available at that point. Um, so theatre was probably your best bet you wanted to make bread and butter money as an actor so yeah so I kind of went down that route so when I left drama school I went into the theatre did some touring um, and then I, I broke my leg actually playing football and I had a moment where I could um, sort of sit back and review what I'd been doing and I thought well I hadn't done any camera work so I started to go down that route and I popped up in a few adverts and then that took me to what, why I'm here really today and what we're talking about. <laughs> mm. So, like, was it always, like, a, a dream to be an actor or was it just, like, a well, progression um, of... I, I was always, ever since a very young age, fascinated by television. Television did fascinate, but I hadn't I hadn't made the leap about acting. So um, I, would, I would sit, like a lot of children, and watch action movies and things like that, and then immediately afterwards I'd want to reenact them with my brother and sister. You know, if I saw a war film, I wanted to play war or pirates and things like that. But, but I, I didn't make that connection. And then, you know, I, I kind of guess I, I didn't really grow out of that. Everyone around me seemed to be growing out of it. Um, but when I went to secondary school, um, as I say, I got into a school play or two, and I thought, no, this this is, this is resonating quite deeply within who I am. Um, maybe I should take a look at this. Um, and, yeah, so I did as many plays as I possibly could. I wrote plays. I wrote comedies and things like that and got other kids to do it. And that was amazing as well. It's amazing. I know Dan was saying to me off air that he writes as well. And that one of the things that I found really rewarding is that something that is in your head, you can write that down on a piece of paper and literally within six weeks, it's up on stage if you're at school. People are acting it and it's, it's there. It's real in front of you. Um, and I found that process and process to create creativity um, incredible. It must be like writing music and performing music as well. Yeah, it's really so rewarding. That, that was, yeah, it's, it was really satisfying. And I thought I was very lucky that I was given the opportunity in school to do it. Um, and then when I went to drama school, of course, you're suddenly in a, a fairly intense, but it was a lot. I had a lovely experience at drama school. I had some really good people that I was there with. But you're all of the same mind. And that, that was that was really great as well. So you can bounce ideas off people, copy people, um, learn from people. Um, and yeah, I suddenly realized that this, this is, it was at drama school. Once I got to drama school, I realized then 
that, yeah, I, I've really got to do this. I've all, I'm always going to be doing this in one way or another. That's interesting. So when did you start to make that transition into TV? Because I understand you've done bit parts in certain roles like uh, Waking the Dead and even Max yeah. and Paddy. Uh, That's so that right. Time. Yeah, yeah. And as I was beginning to recover from my leg and I knew I was going to have to get back into the swing of things, I thought, well, what, what are you going to do once you're back on your feet, literally? I've not done any camera work. And really, I, I hop back to what I was saying earlier um, about being fascinated by television. And I thought, well, I hadn't done any TV work. And around about the 90s, mid not, you know, television was beginning to open up a little bit. You didn't see the same five actors uh, in everything, um, which you did in the 70s or 80s. 80s. You know, you think there were only 12 actors in the country, uh, although it can be a bit like that now. Um, but, you know, things were beginning to open up a bit. There were avenues that you could go down, adverts and things like that. So I, I just changed direction, wrote to an agent, um, and they took me on. And then all of a sudden, I'm sort of like the man in the background in a jeans advert. Or um, I remember doing a campaign for Clark's shoes. I was just this guy modeling hush puppies, you know, um, and, and that kind of thing. And... Um, that led to other things like walk-on parts in Max and Paddy, as you say, and Waking, Waking the Dead as well, um, which were which were really good experiences, um, particularly Max and Paddy. You can imagine. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Did you ever get a chance to like spend time with the actors, like Peter Kay, go and have a well, little, yeah. little and drink? Both, yeah, both he and uh, Paddy McGinnis were both. Lovely people. I mean, the great thing about those two were, were they, they had a, a relationship before their professional one. So they, they'd grown up together in Bolton. So you, you could see that very relaxed nature between the pair of them. And Peter was very, very chilled out because he, he wants you to be funny and relaxed. And he also wants to riff a little bit while he's working with you um, and see what, what happens. There is, a, there is a structure, but it's loose. And he tells you that before the camera gets rolling. He said, look, you know, if you want to play, just just do it. And I was only playing a, a small part. But, you know, I was able to change the lines around, feed him something else, which he came back back with. And, um, yeah, it was really good. And off camera, the pair of them are skylarking the whole time. And then all of a sudden you'll hear action. I mean, Peter directs it, and you'll just hear action out of nowhere, and you're still laughing. But they kind of want that that energy they want that kind of we're all in this having a really good time yeah. and even the crew the camera you know they're finding it very very difficult the guys behind the camera and the sound guys i imagine they're yeah. trying to hold a straight not, face yeah and it is very very difficult because you know he'll suddenly deliver a line to you out of nowhere that's not in the script and all you want to do is laugh and you can't you've, you've got to respond so it's um it, yeah, it, it was great fun, and they, the, the pair of them were brilliant. Paddy McGuinness as well. I got a lift back to uh, my hotel with Paddy McGuinness at the time because we filmed it in Bolton, and Paddy McGuinness at the time was still living with his mum. So that that shows, you know, they're humble down to earth guys, yeah. you know. And that must take um, that must teach you to be better at acting as well. Having Peter Kay throw a line at you out of nowhere and then having to act serious, it must be difficult. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah absolutely. But also what, what it also does is you throw away your inhibitions. That was one of the things because, you know, th this is one of the things that helps the pre-story to Barry Scott and how Barry Scott's created is that, you know, just, just play around with it. You've got this character, mess around with it, and then something will click. You know, you just go, go for it. Don't be in a inhibited and shy and restrict yourself just go for it and you know, as we know Barry Scott is quite big a very big character in fact so in fact that I'd, I'd worked on Stella Street as well that was enough I don't know whether you guys know that but that was um, a, um, a BBC two um, comedy series which uh, had two actors in it one called John Sessions who died recently he's, he's a very well-known actor and comedian and Phil Cornwall, who is a fantastic impersonator and comedic actor. And he he does, um, I'll tell you who he plays that you may know, the DJ that riffs with Alan Partridge at the beginning of Alan Partridge. Tony Clifton, I think his character's name. His radio show. Yes. Uh, you know, he does the thing where he's um, Alan Partridge, I'm Alan Partridge, which... It's on Netflix right now, actually, all the all the series. But so, and he's a brilliant, brilliant mimic. And the pair of them, 
the whole premise of that program, Stellar Street, was that uh, there was a cul-de-sac with all these famous film stars living on it. So you had Michael Caine living next door to Joe Pesci. And then opposite them would be um, Al Pacino. And they did all these, all these impressions. And the corner shop was owned by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And they did these impressions. And they needed actors to come in and play lots of different parts. And again, those two would say, just make it up. Go for it. You, you, if you want to be a crazy policeman, come in and go, members rolling. So it's that kind of thing, that throwing your inhibitions out the window helps actors or certainly helped me to get the confidence to create the character Barry Scott, definitely. What, one thing I did notice, like when I do the comparisons, like I, I can see the origins of where the Barry Scott character would, would come from, uh, the fact that you were a theatre actor. And the Barry Scott has a very hyper-performative kind of persona. Correct. When you look, when you look at like um, the sort of 1920s silent movie era, and when they transitioned into the 1930s, you have what's called talkies. Yeah. And it was a very rocky transition for these actors because, you know, they were very emphatic because silent mm. films originated from the theatre. So they would have to overemphasize themselves to reach out to the audience in the back. Um, so when you watch some of these 1930s movies, you can see it, the acting's horrific because it's just yeah. it's not translating too well. And they had to adapt very, very quickly. And there's two actors that come to mind when I do think about you portray in this Barry Scott. The first one is Nicolas Cage. Again, he's been kind of identical. His inspiration was from that sort of that era where they had to overemphasize themselves. And then another one I think of is Leslie Nielsen. So through yeah. the night, he again worked in theater and he was a disc jockey as well. Uh, and through the 1950s to 1970s, he was sort of associated with these very serious kind of characters, very stoic in his performance. But then as soon as Airplane comes along, that same stoic performance comes across very well in deadpan comedy. And yeah. uh, then that led to the like Naked Gun and it led to the, the scary movies towards the tail end of his career. And I think that's a, a, a and he even admitted he is a funny guy. Like he he enjoys comedy. He didn't want to do these serious roles. He, yeah. he just he wanted to have a laugh. Yeah. And I see that with you with your Barry Scott. Like, I've seen some of the stuff you've done on YouTube. Uh, you know, you oh. like to ha you like to have fun. You like to enjoy yourself. You, you know, fair enough. It's good to have the the techniques that you learn in theatre to be a credible actor. But it, once you've established yourself in that in that in that uh, area, it's good to be like, well, hang on. You know, I want to have some fun here. So you've got that very Americanized infomercial style shouting. You, know, I can't do impressions, but hi, I'm Barry Scott. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. It's a very good um, transition. You're talking about the 1920s, 1930s movies. To go back to my training at drama school, um, I had a fantastic teacher called Evil Megiddo who taught me something called uh, Commedia dell'arte, which hops even further. It goes all the way back to the Renaissance um, Italian theater where you would do mask work and you would put on uh, a mask and it would be a sad face or an angry face or something like that. And you would then have to um, use your body and physicality to adapt, you know, um, adapt that, adopt that style, that angry style, that fury, you know, so you would do, and it, it's, um, it was, I loved that stuff. I really, it was the first time I'd ever come across anything like that. And that physical, physicality, and that freeing up of your body, it does things to you psychologically, and it does things to you um, vocally as well. And it was certainly something that I used when I was preparing for Barry Scott. It, a lot of actors, they go, and I, I, I you know, I do this too. That you, you said you've seen the, the YouTube channel. There are things there where I have gone the other way and used Stanislavski method acting on there. You can go and see it. But with Barry Scott, um, I started from big and then reduced. Go as big as you can, like a Commedia dell'arte character, and then reduce it to the point where it's just about bearable for people to watch and and um, listen to. And that's that's what I was doing there. I was bringing it right down to the the, the, the tightest boundary I, I could and then making this over-the-top character. And at the time, we mentioned it earlier, I, I was thinking about Alan Partridge. I had just got into that. That, that was the cheesy feel that I wanted, you know, this guy that it could all go horribly wrong for this man <laughs> any second in this advert. What's going to happen? Is he going to fall over or something like that? And I always wanted that element of, 
you know, is it all going to go horribly wrong in this advert towards the end? But yeah, that energy, uh, certainly from, yeah, the, the silent era days, that kind of, and, and there is, you're right to pick up on it. Um, I, when, when asked by the director at the beginning, I didn't want him to come across as a slick actor that had had some kind of RADA training. Um, so I did this kind of wooden walk, um, which you may have picked up on, Dan. That may be what you're looking at. If you go back to some of the Barry Scott um, adverts, I kind of got this imaginary rod across my shoulder where I'm kind of walking a bit. Stiff. Yeah, like he's not quite comfortable about being in front of a camera. He's not used to it. So all those little things. But the reason, as you quite rightly said, I do these things is it's fun for me. I don't care if you don't notice them. I really, I know I'm doing them, and I'm, inside I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So that, that that gets me through the day. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm thinking that's quite funny, you know. And if someone else notices it, then I'll go, hey, yeah, great. So you know, you either pick it up or you don't. So was the whole character sort of a brainstorm of, uh, from yourself, or oh, sorry, was it like a was it your, solely your own creation, or was it brainstormed among, amongst the creative team? There was no brainstorming, no. Basically, I got sent a script the night before the audition, and I read it, and I thought it was ghastly, to be honest. I really did. I thought, oh, my God, this is just horrendous. And at first, I, ju I, just, um, I just joined an agent, and he was an old friend of mine from drama school, and, and he'd sent me the script, and at first, I thought it was a wind-up, like an initiation ceremony. Did um, you know it was going to be an advert, or was it just a script? No, I knew it was an ad I knew it was an advert, but of course the the product name. The first thing I'm reading is "Sill It Bang," so I didn't know how to pronounce that. Was it? Is it "Kill It"? What What's this word "Kill It"? I had no idea what that was about. Every sentence had an exclamation mark after it, uh, and it was just so cheesy and, and vile. And I thought, well, I, I've got to make this. I've got to make this work. How do I make this work? So I tried to do it like a BBC newsreader. And that just, just did not sound right at all. And then I thought, you know, there's something a bit infomercial about it. Many years ago, there was a, an advert for Remington Shavers with a chap called Victor Kayan. And he, he would look at the camera and go, I, I love this shaver so much, I bought the company. So I thought, yeah, maybe he owns this. Maybe he, he, he owns this thing, you know. Maybe there's some kind of ownership and it's like infomercial. And like I say, I've got partridge going on in my head. So I read the script again, and there was this thing with the penny test, and there was a line that said good as new when he pulls the penny out of this, pen, this tank of Sillet Bang. And I just went, good as new, like that. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, that's quite funny. What if I go back and do the, hi, I'm Barry Scott, do you have do it in that kind of vein? And I started to go, now this is late at night, and I've had a couple of wines. And I'm thinking, do you know what? This is the funniest. This, this really works. It, it's just amazing. So I went to bed quite happy, and I woke up the next morning. Of course, you, you very often wake up the next morning and think totally differently. Yeah. What was I thinking? There's no way I can turn up at an audition and go, hi, I'm Barry Scott. Send it back. You know, they're going to laugh me out. So, because um, they're going to think I'm taking the mickey out of it, you know? And I was, really, because I thought that's the only way I'm going to be able to get through it. And I'd started thinking the night before about that physicality, that kind of funny stiff walk, um, and thrusting the bottle out like that, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and it, bang. It feel, yeah, yeah, bang, yeah. That, all of that. And it did feel, I think, I felt to myself as I was going to the audition, they're going to think I'm taking the mickey out of it. Anyway, I, I, got, I got to the audition and there was about 80 guys there um, and we all looked pretty much the same. Um, and I was like 78th or something like that to be seen. And there was a holding room before you got in to, to see the, the client and, and the director. And um, when it, it finally came, came to me and, and the uh, casting director was very nervous in this holding room. And I said to her, what, what's the matter? And she said, we haven't found the actor yet. We, it's been awful. Everyone's coming in and doing this BBC kind of announcer voice, taking it, you know, like, hi, I'm Barry Scott. You have problems with rust, you know, that kind of thing, doing it very natural. And I said to her, hold on a second. I've got, I've got something for you. <laughs> I went in there and did full on Barry. I did it louder than I've ever done it on the adverts, you know, hi, I'm Barry Scott Batten, just really leaping around the room. 
and and there was dead silence afterwards. They were smiling, and then they said, um, "Can you do it again?" And I said, well, <laughs> "Uncle." Yeah, and I said, well, "Do you want me to do it any differently?" And they said, "No, no. We just want to see if you can do that again." So I did it again and walked out. And then by the time I got home, they phoned me and said, "You've got the part." Um, so that that was that. I mean, I just made this, and so um, there was a space of time between the audition and shooting, and I and that's when I really decided I'm going for this character. That's I hung my hat on it. I'm going for this kind of infomercial style. And when I turned up to the to the, the actual shoot, the director gave me no notes. There was no um, brainstorm, as you say. Uh, with the client about how I was going to do it. They just put me in front of the camera. I delivered the lines like, like, like you just heard, as you know, and that was it. That was it. And uh, off it went. Legend was made. <laughs> so, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the famous outfit, the, the blue shirt and beige chinos, was that your idea or was that costume design behind that? No, that's, that was a costume thing. And if you, if you look, it, I, I was told about this actually very early on. It's kind of like a, an international neutrality that uh, that that costume. It's it's kind of uh, it's. You see a lot of news presenters. I've even seen Prince William dressed like that. Um, it, it offers up a non-threatening, neutral kind of. You know, I'm, I'm not trendy, but I'm not. You know, uh, you know, I'm not old-fashioned. It's just bang on neutral. And my wife and I, we often go Barry Scott. We see it so often on television, the blue shirt, the brown chinos. And that's what they were after. They didn't want him making a kind of fashion statement. Um, there, was a, there was an advert where we changed the shirt to a bright orange one. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one, actually. It's about the third act. Now, I loved it because I thought this was going to be great. You know, because I can get it makes me louder. <laughs> it didn't scan well on the screen. A bright orange shirt. It just didn't read well. What year was the first recording then? Uh, uh, September two thousand and four, mm -hmm. and and it went on for about fifteen years. Wow, that's a good gig to have. So yeah, um... I was only initially contracted for one. Um, to begin with, they were just going to dip their toe in the water to see what would happen with it. So, what was uh, how long is a, is a is a day on set? Like, what time are you getting up at to start the shoot? Yeah, you, you have to get up early. You, you know, you've got to be at the um, you've got to be at the film set for about seven o'clock. So, you you know, you you got to get up fairly early. What tends to happen is is they once for like three or four days, and um, we do a job lot. So, you know, Silit Bang to begin with, there was just one thing, and that was Silit Bang. But then it expanded into a range fairly shortly afterwards. So you've got Lime Scan and Shine, you've got, you know, Grease and Sparkle and, and uh, the, the Shower Foam. So we were then doing separate adverts for those, but we would, do, we would film them all at the same time. So that would take about three to four days. We would not film them in this country. We would go abroad. So the first ones, the first couple of years we were filming in Budapest, and then I've been to places like Vancouver, South Africa twice. I've been to Cape Town twice, um, Mallorca and things like that. Purely, mainly the Eastern European ones were done because the studios are cheaper. But um, the uh, Cape Town ones we did because they wanted to film outside in February and the weather had to be good. Actually, the very first one, the, the, the penny test, that was shot in London. And we and what they do is they tend to do different. They do different lengths, so you'll get to see different lengths of adverts. You'll get a fifty-second version, which is obviously more expensive for them, uh, and a twenty-second version, and then a real quick, quick flash one. You know, use this now. And then later on, once it's been edited, I'm back in the uh, studio just to lay a voice track on it. Sometimes. Yeah, what what they call ADR. Yeah, that's it. So um. Once it's all wrapped and edited and it's released, how quickly before you realised that this thing had gained momentum? Um, oh, that's a good question. Well, it was it, the first one was shot in September, and as I say, I was only contracted to do one, and I think it came out. It came out at the end. They've really got it out very, very quickly. They got it out by the uh, beginning of October. And I remember getting a phone call at the end of October saying, we want to give you a three-year contract. Are you available next week to come out and shoot another one? 
So uh, it, it, it really picked off. I've got the internet to thank for that, really, and all the virals that went with it. Um, I think had this advert been released in the 1970s, for example, you know, it would not have got the uh, kind of status that it had. So the internet really does push this sort of thing. Yeah, because it did, it did coincide very much with the sort of beginning of the digital era. You know, YouTube was born in 2005, uh, yeah. MySpace 2006, and then Facebook not too long afterwards. So it did, you know, the, the mid-noughties was the beginning of that. And it just yeah. happened to coincide perfectly with, um, you know, like you said, with the social social media, the birth of social media. Yeah. And it just, uh, at what point did like your, your peers and your like sort of acquaintances start to like make you aware you know, this is huge. There's always a little wave at the beginning when you, with the first one, oh, you're on telly. And then it went quiet. And then, um, as I say, we filmed another one, three in a year, which is very unusual. And I think around about the end, around about the end of 2005, so about 12 months later, people were really contacting me and saying, have you seen this on the internet? Have you seen what, what's going on here? Have you seen that? Have you seen that viral? You know, and I was getting sent so many links to and I, my son was a baby at the time, so I was quite busy. So I wasn't surfing the net and on the computer a lot. So um, I was getting my phone was red hot. I was getting so many things. Look, they're making mugs with your face on wallpaper. And there was a guy who was selling Barry Scott wallpaper and things like that. So yeah, it was around about the, uh, the end of the first year when it really did go mad. And it's it's the virals. There was a, a chap as well. When was that? In 2006, I got approached by a record company because a, a, um, a, a chap called Jack Acid had done this remix of the um, of the advert, this kind of acid house, real hard, hardcore thing. And they wanted me to get involved and just lay a voice track over it. He'd taken some samples from um, from the advert. And it, it's just, it was just... Incredible. I went to this recording studio and we, we cut a disc <laughs> and it got into the HMV charts at number 27. And no I, just, <laughs> I just could not believe it. You know, I just, I mean, that was, as a young boy on a bucket list, you know, get, get into the charts on a record, you know, but I don't play any instruments. <laughs> and there it was. So at that point, yeah, it's just, it was mad. Yeah, madness. So did you like, embrace the celebrity that came with it or would you kind of shy away from it well seemed like first, quite an outgoing kind of dude so i, I would well at, at, at first i don't i don't know I, I don't i don't like showing off and 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 going you know hi i'm barry scott i'm the actor that plays barry scott and at, at that time i have to say i, I like this thing creeping in that people thought he was real and actually my my actor's vanity uh, wanted to carry that on because I thought that was a really, really big compliment that some people think that a character that I've created is actually a real person. You can't get a bigger compliment than that for an actor. And I, and I, I kind of had a couple of people approach me like yourselves way back then uh, doing interviews, and I, I said no, I, I don't want to talk about it because I want, I want this myth to perpetuate that he is a real person. It, it kind of it, it kind of titillated me a little bit, I guess, um, and uh, appealed to my vanity. Uh, and so then I, I, I let it go. And I, I did turn down a few things, actually, um, um, that I could, have, I could have used to my advantage. And then suddenly I, I flipped the other way. Nobody knows that this is an actor that's doing this, and maybe they should. So, you know, I started to open up a little bit about it. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed you did an interview uh, quite recently with, uh, was it either Lad Bible or Unilad, and you were yeah. saying the same thing, you know, you'd really, it kind of was a slight detriment to to your other options in your career, because they actually really thought that you were this this uh, character you'd created. Yeah, that's right, yeah, and, and you know, at first something that seemed really great, I suddenly started thinking, hang on a minute, you know, no one's, no one's phoning me up, or I'm not getting any auditions for anything, because... Possibly they think I'm just going to turn up in a blue shirt and yell and scream at you know, yell Shakespeare. Um, so maybe it's that, you know, people can sometimes not be very imaginative. And uh, I, I, I did I did think that there was there is a problem there. And also there is a, a rumour going around the internet at the moment that Barry Scott is dead. I don't know whether you've seen that as well, but I, I had my mum about two years ago see if I was all right because she'd read it. Mm -hmm. oh, 
I saw that the, uh, there was articles detailing that the character had died in the sense that the adverts were no more. So that's kind of what I took from it. Like, no, well, no, there was a, something was reported where apparently I hit my head um, in turbulence on, in an aeroplane. I actually looked into that and there was a, a chap in America called Barry Bethel who does something very, very similar to what I do here. And that had happened to him. So the Barry thing had kind of got confused in the Chinese whisper network of um, of the internet and that, that uh, changed to me here and some people still you know email me now and say are, is, are you dead <laughs> it'd be pretty, pretty bizarre you know, talking to a ghost yeah i mean that you know around the mid 2010s you did have that kind of uh hoax dead celebrity thing going on you know barry chuckle yeah. you know your uh, you know yourself uh, and various other characters, but then 2017 rolls along and celebrities start dying left, right, and center. So yeah, I kind of I think know. I think that kind of killed the whole hoax thing because there was enough celebrities actually dying. Dying then anyway, yeah. yeah. You know, you had David Bowie, you had Alan Rickman, Prince, wasn't Prince? Prince. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, sadly Barry Chuckle eventually did die. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was so, a bad year. That was a bad year. That one. Yeah, that was sad, especially when David Bowie went. You know, yeah, I know. He's a genius. Yeah. And Gene Wilder, that was another sad one for me. That's right, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he's a big favourite of mine. Young Frankenstein and films like that. He's amazing. In, yeah. I love that, that. comedian. He was a yeah, good one for me. He was an American. Yeah. I, love, I love that young Frankenstein. Frau Brucker. And then you'd hear yeah. him crying <laughs> in the background. Yeah, yeah. I get you talk about, that goes back to 1920s um, pastiche kind of uh, action and, and uh, the way they're moving around. You look at those comedic actors in, in that film, they've... Really, I know Mel Brooks is a bit of a genius, but they, they've really done their homework there. The way that they're even moving, you know, Marty Feldman, Gene Wilder, the way they're, they're actually moving around um, is it, just fabulous. I mean, you do feel like you are watching a 1920s horror movie. Mm. Yeah, he's a brilliant director, man. Yeah. Well, another thing I wanted to bring up is that, you know, you find that as you get to the tail end of a current uh, decade, there will be a lot of nostalgia for the previous decade. So now we're starting to see the rise of nostalgia for the two, the, the noughties, as they call it. Uh, myself and Sean were coming of age in the noughties. So we, we didn't finish school until 2008. So obviously we would see your Silip Bang commercial uh, all through the mid 2000s. And you start to see the memes on Facebook and on social media where there's like a nine out of 10 chance that Silip Bang will be part of that little collage of nostalgia photographs. Other ones will be like, I don't know, Mr. Tumbles or be... Uh, I'm trying to think of the top of my head Balamori. now. Balamori. Balamori. Yeah, you have these sort of like, you know, associations. Oh, attack with, Neil Buchanan. Yeah, you have these yes. associations with uh, the, the noughties, what made that era. And, it's, you know, it's nice to, as a gimmick to sort of have a little giggle at it and think, oh, yeah, I remember, remember that being back in the thing 2006, 2007, whatever. But the problem is that we have this kind of habit to want to romanticize the past. You know, every every generation thinks that they had the best era growing up. You, you see these 1970s, 1980s nostalgia reunions in Butlins or 90s nostalgia uh, up at Haven Holiday Parks. And, you know, it kind of kind of put a bit of a stigma on some. Like you said, you've embraced it very well for yourself. But um, other people in a similar position aren't so appreciative of it being associated with a children's nostalgia. Why? Why wouldn't you be? I mean, I'd say I, I, that's not how my brain works at all. I mean, I, I still now get requests from children for birthday cards. I, I, a lot of people, I, I go to a, a pub, I live in the East End of London, and I go to this real East End spit and sawdust pub called the North Star in Leightonstone. There's a pub for it. Um, and it's, a, it's a great pub. So when they open, go and have a look. It's a great, great pub. But I go there regularly, and there's, there's lads your age that come in, and they go, you Barry Scott. And I, I say, yeah. and they said, look, when I was five, I loved your adverts. And I, I think, I think that's great. I absolutely love it. Why would you, why, why would anyone shy away from, you know, having been a part of a child, uh, someone's childhood? I think that's, you know, all the Blue Peter presenters and the previous Doctor Who's and things like that. I think that's a lovely way to be remembered and, and considered. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I agree. I, I just think some people, uh, some actors just don't understand the, the reasons behind the phenomenon. Like Alec, a, a very famous example is Alec Guinness. You know, he played Obi-Wan in, in A New Hope and he yeah. just didn't understand why people, because he obviously he had a very decorative career before that. Yeah. And he just, just couldn't understand why he kept getting all this <laughs> fan mail. Because yeah. 
I think I think with someone like Alec Guinness, I mean, Alec Guinness was an extraordinary actor um, and, you know, kind hearts and coronets. I think he played like 20 parts. I mean, this was a man who was a proper, proper actor, you know, classical actor and stuff like that, theatre, highbrow theatre. And I think probably what was knocking him was after having done all of that very, very credible highbrow work, that the thing that he was probably going to get most remembered for is playing Obi-Wan Kenobi in a, in a, in a film that's basically based on visual effects and green screens where he's not really had to do an awful lot of acting at all, just put a cloak on and look a little bit moody. Um, and, and, and picked up an enormous paycheck as well. He probably got paid more for that film than the rest of his career put together, I would imagine. So I think that's probably what was, I think that was probably what was um, playing on his mind. But, you know, as an actor, each job, the great thing about being an actor is each job is different and you've just got to embrace the differences and, and just remember that you're very, very lucky. So if you're working in front of a green screen, that's okay. That's going to be very interesting. And if you're working for a theatre company that goes and visits schools and teaches them about science and you're on £100 a week as well, that's going to be an amazing job to do and a fabulous experience as well. Yeah. Do you think uh, theatre actors have more pride in their work than someone who works, like you say, like on a green screen or something? I think they, th I think they like to think they are. Uh, they have more pride. I think that um, there's something worthy, isn't there, about, well, I'm a theatre actor. And then there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm, I'm at the coalface of acting. Um, but, you know, I remember I was watching um, an interview with Daniel Craig, and Daniel Craig is a very, very good actor. And, uh, you know, he's, he's got a good, um, he's got a good, you know, um, biography of films, CV of films. Uh, but I saw him interviewed, and he said, I could never do an advert. He said, I, I've, I've been through auditions, and I just can't do adverts. I can't make an impact in 20 seconds. You know, I can't, I can't do it. So there are some, basically, there are some arenas that are suited more for certain actors. So, you know, someone like Brian Blessed, for example, you can imagine him filling up a theatrical space. But you want him to play something really detailed and small in front of the camera. So there's always that, that kind of fear, if I can't do that, and maybe I should um, poo-poo it a little bit. But I'm yeah. sorry, very, I've used a very old-fashioned expression there. But, you know, maybe maybe it's not worthy of me, rather than I'm not very comfortable doing it and admitting it, I'm not comfortable about working in front of a green screen. I'm far more comfortable about working on theatre. Therefore, theatre is better than green screen. That's rubbish. It's just horses for courses. And some actors, like me, can do everything. <laughs> <laughs> Multifaceted. <laughs> it's interesting like how you know in this day in this era it's very common for very high profile actors to participate in commercials you've got you know Charlie Theron doing the J'adore perfume but yeah, I saw that um, back in the 70s and 80s it was kind of frowned upon for high profile actors to participate in commercials so more often than not they would do them abroad uh, yeah. I saw Charles Bronson the actor Charles Bronson was um, did some sort of commercial in Japan because again it was frowned upon so yeah, they would yeah. have to go very far, like go to Japan or go yeah. to East, Eastern Europe to, to do these commercials. Well, you're absolutely right. There was a stigma attached to it. It could actually affect the work that you did. And uh, Lost in Translation is a great study on that. Uh, Bill Murray's uh, performance in that. He's out in Hong Kong. I forget where. It's, it's in the Orient somewhere, uh, you know, for a whiskey. And he's a, a weather-worn actor that's really ashamed of doing it. And it has that kind of stigma attached to it and he plays it very well but now as you say it, it, it that that's that's gone um but you've also got that thing about um tv serials and films that that can also uh tv actors aren't as good as film actors but now with the emergence of netflix when you're watching some of the the, the work that you see on netflix which is outstanding it's cinematic quality in your home and particularly in, uh, in lockdown, I, I should think Amazon and Netflix, I mean, I know I've been watching Netflix and Amazon every day virtually, you know, and the quality, the quality of the, the work on Netflix is outstanding. And so there's no way anyone can tell me that being a TV actor is somehow less um, important or grand than being 
film star. You can't you can't convince me of that now because there's some brilliant performances on TV now. You you watch a series like Breaking Bad and you see the standing the standard of acting in that. It's it's Oscar worthy, you know. Um, Brian Cranston is Oscar worthy. Is Oscar, that's an Oscar worthy performance. Um, Soon and they'll start and, doing that, giving Oscars out for TV performances because the level of the budget for it as well. And it, like you say, back to the Peter K thing, it's like they're giving people money who have who are talented, and they're giving them the freedom to do what they want. And some some things are bad, some things are good, you know. Yeah, but have a go. Let them have a go. Yeah, I mean, I I find it interesting as well how we're seeing a sort of change in the structure of commercials now. Uh, a very famous example is like, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Deadpool f- film series. Yes. But, but the way Ryan Reynolds sort of uh, got the audience hyped up for that, he he did like a Bob Ross parody. Uh, yeah. And they even poked fun at some of the visual effects being incomplete, but it just made <laughs> it. So you do like reenactments with like dolls. And yeah. we're, we're seeing a change now because obviously we've got streaming services now. We've got YouTube premium. You have all these things where you've got five seconds of commercials and you have to grab them in five seconds. Otherwise, they're going to click on skip ad. So, you know, it's got to be a very, you've really got, to, the attention span's different now. Well, you know, 10 yeah. years ago, it was something that we had to just kind of tolerate. Maybe go make a cup of tea, maybe go get yourself a drink, go to the toilet, whatever. But now that's changed. Now it's like you can skip and it's like you've yeah. got five seconds to get them. Yeah. Well, that was that was one of the things I was very aware of when I was uh, doing Barry Scott. And that, that is, is that you, you've got to make people remember this advert. You've got 20, 30 seconds to make people stay in the room. So you've got to use techniques. And there are there were particularly vocal techniques and physical techniques I was using. And that's why children liked it as well. You know, it's like watching a cartoon character. It, it, it would catch your attention. And that's the whole point. Um, and, you know, I, I know it's it's bad, but, you know, a kid may talk to his mum about Barry Scott and go, silly bang man, silly bang man, while he's in the shop. You know, and his and his mum will go. Okay, we'll get Silit Bang this week. You know, I know I know that the ethics of that are you know questionable, but th- this is how things are marketed, and um, y- you've got to make these things um, uh, instantly. People will instantly remember. So you get these sing-songy catchphrases like "Bag of the Dirt is gone." You know, so everyone's going, oh, bag of the dirt, he's gone, that guy. Hi, I'm Barry Scott. And, oh, I've never been through a pipe quicker. You know, that that <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, you, yeah. You've got to hit, hit those catchphrases, you know. So catchphrases, very important. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, you're sort of about 98% of adverts are very self-serving. You know, they serve their purpose, they sell the brand, and on they go. But there's that very small percentage that becomes a cultural phenomenon where the commercial itself becomes bigger than the brand. Uh, you know, I, there was an advert in 1998 for Reebok called uh, Belly's Gonna Get You. And, you know, most people wouldn't even know that that was a Reebok advert, but they know Belly's Gonna Get You. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, there's loads of them. I mean, some of them are, are, are so clever. You instantly remember, remember the product. You mentioned the name earlier. Uh, is it, I can't pronounce it very well. It's a Russian guy, Stralislavski. Stanislavski. Yeah, he was the origin. Behind, he was the, the brains behind the method actor, wasn't he? Not like you said, Marlon Brando would have late, later adopt it. Uh, but now it's almost become a bit of a parody of itself because everybody, all the A-listers are jumping on board with it. You know, Marlon Brando was excellent with it. Daniel Day Lewis was amazing with it, and even to a capacity, Christian Bale when he did the Machinist. But yeah. you know, when I hear stories about, say, Jared Leto playing the joker and he's sending like all sorts of things to his co-stars through the mail you think i don't know uh, and then the poor guy only gets nine minutes of screen time yeah 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 but do you think him um, as well do you reckon Sasha baron cohen's method actor because he well plays- I, you know i was talking to uh, talking to my son about it it's a coincidence there i was talking about him to my son the other day very very smart guy he's, his father is a professor at cambridge university and he's been very well educated and um, I think he is a method actor or a method comedian. Um, I, he is creating an environment where anything can happen. When you look at the, the scene with um, Giuliani, for example, and, you know, this is, you know, and in the first one where he's at that tea party and he goes upstairs to the toilet. Yeah, and that, and that naked wrestling through that hotel, I do believe he did that. 
I think when you see the reaction of the people in that conference room, I think that's real. So he is pushing, pushing boundaries to get his comedic message across. And that is what we're talking about, like Kaufman. What, what is it? What are boundaries? And that's, I mean, that's what we're all in. We're all in this pot at the moment. People are calling each other racist this week and unsympathetic to uh, mental issues and stuff like that. Uh, the lines and boundaries seem to be very, very blurred or non-existent. So you've got either way. I was taught that, that, that acting is a discipline. And I think discipline is a, is a key word. And I think the discipline is, is that you've got to create a controlled environment where you are portraying something you, to your audience and they believe that they're in that environment, but you are disciplined enough within it to have control of it and it not to go too far. But you watch those films like Borat and they're extraordinary, extraordinary to watch. And he only gets those, those results because he has pushed it way out and you don't get bore out the movie unless he does do things like that. Released, released hell. <laughs> i tell you a funny story related to Borat because I lived in France for a couple of years and I learned the French language when I was 21. Just decided one day I was going to learn French. Very spontaneous, but I kept at it. But I learned French from the Southern French people. So I've, I had a very Africanized accent. So that's that scene in Borat when he goes, oh, you're teaching me to talk like a yule. And then he goes up to the hotel guy and he goes, oh, what's up, Vanilla Face? You know, I was very much like that because I had a very rough Africanized, North Africanized accent. Yeah. And it really kind of like they're looking at me like this, you know, this white guy from England speaking in a very kind of guttural sort of French accent. Yeah. And uh, yeah. they just couldn't wrap their head around it. But um, well, there are white Jamaican. There are white Jamaicans. There is a, a Jamaican accent. We all know the Jamaican accent. And there are white Jamaicans. And when you hear a white man speaking with that accent, you think, hang on a minute, what are you doing? You can't speak like that. But he's from Jamaica. That's his accent. So, you know, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it does seem odd. It's the way the brain flips it around. But that's the way he speaks. He's from Jamaica. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, um, we're coming towards the end now. We do this little segment where we ask the guests what their favorite movie of all time is or TV show. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And it can't um, be a silly bank commercial. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> um, well, I guess my favourite TV series of all time, there was a series back in the 1970s called I, Claudius, which was uh, about, it had Derek Jacoby, John Hurt in it, Brian Blessed, funny enough, in it. And it, it's basically the story of the Caesars um, from Augustus right through to Nero. And um, it, it was like a soap opera. And you had John Hurt playing Caligula. Um, Brian Blessed was uh, Augustus. Derek Jacobi was Claudius. Um, and Christopher Biggins played Nero. Now, it doesn't sound as horrendous as you may think, but he was very, very good. And it was a cutting-edge TV series. And the acting in it was extraordinary. The writing in it was fantastic. And it, it, as soon as, you know, you binge watch um, things on Netflix now. We didn't have that luxury back in the 1970s. So this thing would be on, I remember it was on, on a Wednesday night, to watch this program week after week after week. And it got viewing figures of something like 18, 19 million. Uh, extraordinary viewing figures, 20 million. Um, and it was, it was cutting edge TV. So um, I, that one filmed. I mean, oh, my goodness. Um, there are so many wonderful movies. Um, Take your time. No, no pressure. You floored me on that one. Um, I mean, there are so many. I mean, it, I mean you could lie gosh. and we'd still believe you. Yeah. yeah sorry, <laughs> Do you know, I think, I, think, I think I've been watching Goodfellas recently with, with my son. He's discovered it. And that, that is a an amazing movie and i and i do like the godfather movies as well and i i'll very often go the first two one of my favorite foreign movies of all time is city of god which is a brazilian portuguese film yes yeah the Port of brazil yeah 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 brilliant film. i mean it, it, that one is difficult for me I'm a, I'm a great music lover as well and it's like saying who's your favorite recording artist or song of all time and it's just you know, you've, you've got about 50 or 60 you can met, you can mention and, and you'll be here all day, really. And, and you know, yeah, they, they, they all vie for position. I'll tell you a bit of movie gossip for you, Neil. you like this one. So apparently uh, on the first Spider-Man movie, like even Tobey Maguire back then, even then he was he was a bit of a bit of a diva. 
And one of the electricians paid the guy playing Flash. Well, he said he offered him. He said, "I'll pay you a hundred bucks." Like in that fight scene, if you actually punch him in the face. Wow! Like the casting wow. crew just couldn't stand Tobey Maguire, so they said really? to the guy playing playing Flash, who went on record a, a couple of years ago saying this, saying like he was offered a couple of hundred bucks from one of the electricians to punch Tobey Maguire in the face during that <laughs> scene. Well, actually, that's just reminded me one of my top ten films. Actually, now you've asked me that question, there will be blood. Now, the reason why that you just nudged my memory was Paul Danner that is in that, that film tells a story about Daniel Day-Lewis. Now, if you don't know that film, he's playing a priest and Daniel Day-Lewis is an oil magnet, uh, oil magnet and he's having to do a deal with the church, which he doesn't want to do. And he, he has a big fallout with Paul Danner playing this priest. And Daniel Day-Lewis apparently had been horrible to Paul Danner throughout all the filming. And then they had this moment where there's this crescendo between the two of them where they're going to have it out with each other. And the camera starts rolling and Daniel Day-Lewis punches the hell out of Paul Daniel, for real. Actually does it, beats him up for real and then walks off. And, and Paul Daniel could not believe it. He's got bruises and cuts all over him. And, and the next day, Daniel Day-Lewis comes up to him, morning, how are you doing? Like that, completely different because he got again what he wanted. He got that animosity, animosity, but between them, and a, a piece of realism that he wanted for the scene. And then once that was passed, he was back to being cordial and polite. So you know, there's that. But his his performance in that film, Daniel Day Lewis, I think is one of the best performances you'll ever see in a movie, ever, ever. Well. We're going to have to wrap things up. I don't know how the final product is going to come out because there's been a little bit of technical difficulties throughout. Um, so, but it could just well be that the actual final recording is going to be fine. So, okay. Can I just plug one thing? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. You mentioned earlier about my YouTube channel. You can check out some of my work, uh, um, Neil Burgess, and also in about a week or so's time, I'm doing some stuff for Comic Relief where um, I've been involved with uh, a company called Star DM Me, where I do birthday messages for people. You can write, write to Star DM. They let me know who you are. And for a little bit of money, I'll send you a personalized message back. But from next week onwards, we're doing those, and the money is going to Comic Relief. So if you want a message from me and give some money to Comic Relief, or whatever, or if you want to make a message from me and give some money to me, mm -hmm. <laughs> Get in touch um, on Star DM. Okay. Oh, of course. So, yeah. Well, again, Neil, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. It's been nice right. to talk to you, Bob. Yeah, yeah you too. Hopefully.